Judges chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. When Ehud died, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a pattern we've already seen, we've already noted. It continues throughout the book. God raises up a deliverer for his people. In this case, Ehud, the story we previously saw. That deliverer is used by God in a great and powerful supernatural way. Everyone can see it. No one can deny it. And over the course of that deliverer's life, people are in tune with the Lord. There's this attitude of repentance. There's this restoration. These seasons are marked by peace in the land. Prosperity, enjoyment, joy, satisfaction. But then inevitably, once that deliverer passes away, it doesn't take long for the people to go back into sinful patterns, to repeat mistakes of the past. In my study this week, I ran across this quote. I think it's so true. Sin is a boring routine. You know, we're not even given the specifics of what the people did that was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because it's all the same when it's all said and done. If you go back through history, when it comes to sin and patterns of sin, they're very predictable. And they're not that creative. They're the same old, same old. Look at your own life and the patterns of sin. I mean, do you give yourself an A for creativity? Likely not. The things that you fall back into are the same things that you've fallen back into before. Sin is a boring routine. It's a rut. And so the deliverer passes off the scene and the people go back to the same muck. The way that this gets structured, we noted it last Sunday, we'll repeat it. The children of Israel, again, 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 how predictable. Ultimately, the reason for this pattern is that the deliverers that God was raising up for specific times in Israel's history were foreshadowers of a greater deliverer that would never die, his name being Jesus. A deliverer that would remain and that would live forever So Ehud died, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So, shocker, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in, you can try to pronounce that on your own. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 300 had 900, excuse me, chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. This time period of Israel's history is a little different than the previous ones we've looked at, mainly because of a geographic shift. Instead of some of the conquests and some of the judges and some of the battles, instead of the activity occurring in the southern regions of Israel. This is the first instance of incursions happening in the northern tribes of Israel. This is the north country, Galilee, Nazareth, the northern part of Judea. 
The Canaanites end up being God's instrument. So Ehud dies. They go back to their evil ways. So God punishes them. You know, ultimately, you have to make a decision. I think this is one of the great themes of Judges. And it's a simple theme, but profound. It's a theme that all of us have to ultimately grapple with and answer, not just in a a macro sense, but really, if you get down to the nitty-gritty, it's a question you have to ask yourself every single day. It's this. Is God's plan for my life better than mine? It's not more complicated than that. And it's macro sense, is God's plan for my life better than mine? Now, most of us as Christians would say, absolutely, sure. Yes, I want God's will for my life in that big sense. I want to follow God and end up where God wants me. I want all that God has for me. But then you got to back that concept into the daily exercise each day. Today. Do I want God's will in my life or my own? Do I know better for my life than God? Now, when you bring that to each day, that should have a profound effect on what you do with that day. If the life that God has has, has created us for and then died to redeem us to enjoy, if we come to the Lord like, you know what, God, I think that you know what's better for me than even I know. And I know that your desires for me are better than even the desires that I have for me. That I know that you know what will provide satisfaction and yield joy and and, and bring peace. Your will for my life is better than my will for my life. That will change your daily exercise. Lord, I have a lot of plans for today. But when it's all said and done, you know what's best. See, this is the dynamic that the children of Israel are having to grapple with when it's all said and done. Is the life that God wants for me better than the life I want for me? And if it's God's will for me, then obedience is necessary. All right, God, you lead me, you guide me, you go and I'll follow. That's why Jesus, such simple terms with salvation, he just, the invitation's what? Follow me. And where I lead and you follow, that's the best path for you. Now, it might be hard. It might not bring all the joy that you want. There might be trials and tribulations. There might be valleys in addition to mountaintops. But you have to ask yourself, is, is, is it God's will or mine? So the children of Israel make this decision. We know it's best. So God just hands them over to the, the natural manifestation of that. In this situation, he sells them into the hands of the Canaanites, the chief enemy of Israel. And specifically, we're told that they're handed into uh, the authority of Jabin, king of Canaan. And that word Jabin, it's an interesting term for you Bible students. Uh, it's likely not a name of a specific individual, but more of a title. In the same way that we might refer to Caesar or refer to Pharaoh, Jabin in its original language is probably just the designated title for the king of Canaan. So we don't know his specific identity, but we are given the identity of his right hand. The man that's influencing their power and their reign and their might over the children of Israel. This man, Sisera, and we're also told that his strength, his authority was demonstrated in the fact that he had 900 chariots of iron, 900 chariots of iron. And these were like the tanks of the ancient world. If you had two different armies 
foot soldiers and those on chariots because of the speed and the power and the might and the protective cocoon, chariots had a significant advantage in the ancient world in hand-to-hand ground warfare. Now, there were some drawbacks to chariots, which we'll get to later in our story. The might of Sisera is demonstrated, and he dealt harshly. He oppressed the children of Israel for 20 years. 20 years, that's a long time. Now, the structure of of this chapter and the next is is important because we're going to have to jump back and forth just a little bit to develop a greater picture. Chapter 4 gives us the documented history of what happens. Chapter 5 transitions us into a song of praise. It's actually a duet that gets sung by two of, of our heroes, Deborah and Barak. Now, within this song of praise that manifests from what God does, we're given greater insights into the story. So we'll kind of have to jump back and forth. So when we read, for 20 years, Sisera dealt harshly. He oppressed the children of Israel. Look at chapter 5, beginning with verse 6, for a little bit of a deeper insight into what this was like. We read, in the days of Shamgar, son of Antha, and the days of Jael, the highways were deserted. And the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, rose uh, arose a mother in Israel. They cho- choose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Like the, 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 the insight is during this 20 years of oppression by Sisera, like people... It was unsafe to travel. Like instead of taking the normal roadways because of vandals and oppressors, you would have to sneak around. People lived in gated areas because of, of the threat of violence. In fact, Sisera, his might had been demonstrated in the fact that the children of Israel was disarmed. Again, Deborah would sing that, that there was not a shield or a spear among 40,000. The enemy not only had placed the children of Israel into a bondage, but as the enemy always does, they were disarmed. They're in a bad spot, a dangerous scene. Verse four. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, this Deborah character is quite unique in Scripture. We're not given any of her background at all. We're not given family, lineage, heritage. We're just really introduced to her We're given a description of her without any explanation of how she came to be. She's introduced right off the bat as a prophetess. Now again, within the roles of Israel, you had the the, the role of priest, and a priest represented the people before God. A prophet represented God before the people. Think of a prophet or a prophetess as God's megaphone to his people. God would speak through the prophets. That's why we have a lot of books of prophecy within the Old Testament. Don't just deal with future events, but present events. 
Again, God speaking through an individual to a nation. We're told that this woman, Deborah, has this gift of prophecy. She's a prophetess. She has this wonderful relationship with God. She's connected with her father. God is speaking to her. And she's bold enough to relay the messages to whoever would hear. This was a tender woman, a strong woman, a woman of prayer. We're introduced to her, aside from being a prophetess, as being the wife of Lapidus. And again, don't, don't miss that detail. You know, we're not really given that kind of a classification to any of the other judges, or for that matter, anybody else. It's not as though we'll be introduced to Gideon, husband of so-and-so, or Samson, husband of fill-in-the-blank. And yet with Deborah, we're given, hey, she's the wife of Lapidus, which means that she, she was a wife. She's this prophetess. She has this like divine, cool ministry, but she was also, she had a home. And we'll see in her song that she had children. So this is a woman that's balancing a lot of different aspects to her life. God is using her to raise kids. God is using her to be a wife. Again, the, the designation, the description of her husband, hey, there was a man over her home, and yet God still had this unique plan and was using her in cool ways. I like Lapidus. We, we know nothing of him. He doesn't do a thing. But this man recognized that there was something cool about his wife. And he's included in the story. Hey, my wife is a prophetess. I recognize that. I don't have any gifts. But my wife does. In fact, there's nothing noteworthy to record about me. But my wife is a baller. And you know what? I'll support her in her ministry. That's what Lapideth does. She's this prophetess. Lapideth recognizes it. He said, get back in the kitchen, woman. No, he supports her. Hey, God has equipped you, has met you, can use you. I want to be behind you. Fellas, fellas, your wife is awesome. And the way that the scriptures present spiritual gifts is she has all the ones available to you. Now, the application of them within the family and the church, God has different roles. I don't really want to get into that per se. Other than to say that your wife is the daughter of God and is equipped by the Spirit of God in awesome ways. And as her husband, you should identify those things and see those things. And as the man of your home, nourish them and encourage her to use them. How Deborah was a prophetess, who knows? We're not told, but she was. And Lapideth is like, you need to use this gift. And whatever sacrifice as a husband I need to make so that God can use you, I'm there. We're a team. Lapideth. I like Lapideth. So Deborah is this prophetess. Now we're told, again at the end of verse 4, that she was judging Israel at this time. And the way that she would judge Israel is she, she had like a station. She had a place that she would hang out. We're given the location, the palm tree of Deborah, where it was between, the mountains of Ephraim, and people would go for judgment. So if you had a problem, right, and you needed a mediator, you needed advice, you're like, man, this is a tough one. I need to go hang out with Deborah. And so you would go to this palm tree, 
There she is chilling out because there's shade. You go up to her and say, hey, this is what's going on in my life. I really could use a word from the Lord. And she would judge in the sense that she would mediate. She would give advice. She would give counsel. A very cool manifestation. Now, has she been sanctioned by Israel to do this? No. Is this an official role or title? No. Has somebody given her the authority to do? No. She has this gift, and she goes to a place, unsanctioned, and people go to her. Why? Because she's heralded as the arbitrator of things? No. People just recognize, wow, this woman has a gift of God. You see, this was a natural manifestation. You know, sometimes people, people wait to be given an office to use their gift. When Deborah teaches us that you should just use your gift regardless of office, in fact, using your gift often makes the office itself irrelevant. Deborah just goes out under a tree. Word spreads. There's no Facebook. There's no Twitter. She's not sending out like little videos. Like this is word of mouth. Hey, you have a problem? Go check out this, this woman. She hears from God. Now, one of the complicated aspects of, of Deborah, how it plays out throughout Scripture, is that she's referred to as a judge. And she's referred to as a judge in the same vein as the other judges that we've seen and the ones that will come later. She's referred to as a judge because of, of the description here of her judging. But understand the application of, of this ministry of hers is not the same thing as being a judge in regards to the book of Judges. In our introduction, we noted that a judge was not in, in the same way that you would see a judge in our culture, someone in a black robe sitting behind a big desk, arbitrating, reaching judgments or rulings. No, a judge in this biblical context is a deliverer. This is someone that God raises up, God calls, and they go out and they, deli- they actively deliver the children of Israel. We won't see Deborah do this. Deborah doesn't act as a deliverer. Now, she'll play an important role. She functions as a prophetess. I actually think that it's, it's probably wrong and false for us to place her in the same classification of a judge. I, I say that if you'd very quickly turn to Hebrews chapter 11. This is the hall of faith. This is the New Testament commentary of the Old Testament. Just one, one verse Verse 32, we read, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, who becomes a character in our story, and Samson. And he continues on, but, but you don't have a mention. Now, you don't have a mention of all the judges, but you don't have a mention of Deborah. We have a mention of Barak, who's in the story, functioning as the judge, but you don't have a mention of Deborah. Deborah is, a, is an awesome woman. I don't think Deborah is a judge. I think Barak's the judge. But Deborah is a prophetess, which is awesome. Barak gets the credit as being the judge and deliverer. So the reason I bring this up is that oftentimes we're in a culture where we're talking about women's roles in church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and you'll hear, well, look at Deborah. There were no men to step up and do something, so God used a woman. And you look around the church today, and there's no guys stepping up, so women can be pastors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
The problem is I think that's a distortion of the story because I don't think Deborah's a judge at all. In fact, we'll see that, that, that what does Deborah do? She goes over back. First, she's fine being described as the wife of someone. And later on, she'll be fine being described and defined as the mother of kids. Like she's cool with wife title, mom title, and she's a prophetess, which we also see manifestating in the New Testament and the power of the Holy Spirit and the life of women as well. But if you apply judge, which will later be designated king as well, then you run into some complicated natures. But Deborah will go overboard to come behind and support Barak, who then gets credit later on. You can study that more on your own. I'm going to leave it there. First prophecy. So Deborah sent, verse 6, and called for Barak, the son of Abinai, from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Now, she sends for Barak. How does she know about Barak? We have no idea. Was it a word of the Lord? Well, clearly God had given her a word. Did she know of his identity beforehand? Who knows? But she's like, she understands God has spoken to her. She understands the spiritual landscape of the people. They've been in bondage for 20 years. God's wanting to do something. God has spoken to her. This man, Barak, is to be his instrument of deliverance. So she sends for Barak to come. She has a word of God. Now, does Barak, has Barak already sensed the same leading? Is Deborah confirming what Barak's already heard? Or is this a brand new word of knowledge for Barak? We don't know. But regardless, Barak comes. Deborah wants to see me. Has a word of God. She says, hey, God wants you to deliver the people. Raise up 10,000 troops from these two tribes. We'll go near the, the Kishon uh, River, Mount Tamor. God will deliver Sisera into your hand. God wants to use you, Barak. Verse 8, so Barak says to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, again, there's kind of two ways to read this. Is Barak being a coward? Is this evidence of some lack of faith in the life of Barak? And to be fair, that is how, generally speaking, Barak gets presented as a result of this verse. As a hesitant de deliverer, that Deborah has to just kind of push into it. That being said, I, I think that that's, that's not a fair reading of Barak, because we'll see amazing faith. I mean, he goes down to take on 900 chariots in the valley. I mean, the, the man demonstrates incredible faith. He's the guy that ends up swinging the sword. He's the guy that puts his life on the line. We see faith to the point that he gets commended in the New Testament. In the Hall of Faith, who's listed? Barak, as being a man of faith. So what's happening here? Now, I think it is fair to say that there's a little bit of, he's a little timid. He wants Deborah to go. Why? Well, keep in mind the history of Israel. Often in, in the conquest of Joshua, what were they commanded? 
Send the ark first, right? Send the presence of God out in front of the army. We need God in our midst. We need God present. If the battle's the Lord, the Lord has to be in the battle. Could it be a different way of reading it that, that Barak is like, hey, God's leading us. God's, you, you, I, I'd like you to come along. Like, obviously God's speaking. If there needs to be further instruction, I'd like you close. Are you willing to go? So she says, absolutely. That's not actually in the text. It, it just says, I will surely go with you. She doesn't ask Lapidus, does she, for permission. Why? Lapidus sitting there thinking, I can't say no to her. God's using her. He's supportive. Yeah, I'll go. Nevertheless, she adds, and, and again, what is Deborah's ministry? Prophecy. So she's already given a first prophetic word. Barak, deliverer. Cicero be delivered into your hands. Here's the location. Prophecy one. Prophecy two. So she says to Brock, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Cicero into the hand of a woman. Again, is this a rebuke? Is this a punishment? Hey, Barack, you'll go, but you won't get any glory because you got to bring a woman with you. I don't think so. Again, because of the way the story plays out. I think, again, this is just a prophetic utterance. Barak, you're going to go. God's going to use you, but the glory will be the Lord's, and it won't be yours. In fact, God's going to use another woman, and she's going to get a lot of credit. So Barak is going into this like, I'm not going to emerge the hero. It's a check on his ego. You're being faithful. You're being obedient because God has called you. God has commissioned you. But you got to let go of the glory because it won't be yours anyway. Again, a prophetic utterance we'll see fulfilled. So Barak called Zebulun, Naphtali to Kadesh, went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now, we're given a little weird background here, verses 11 and 12. The scene kind of shifts. Now, Heber, the Kenite, and the Kenites were the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, also known as Jethro. He had separated himself from the Kenites and pinched his tent near the Terebith tree, Azamanin, which is beside Kedesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abaniah, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So what's happening is we're just giving this little bit of a side that there's this Kenite who were supposed to be living down in the south, but for whatever reason, no background, he decides, I'm out. He packs up his RV he drives north near what will be the scene of the battle. They park. They've got their hookups. Again, these are Bedouins. And because of the political dynamic, throughout their travels, they've heard what Barak's doing, that he's recruiting an army to probably take on Sisera. So they move into a new area, and this guy... Heber goes to Sisera and is like, there's something nefarious going on. So that's all we're told. They're in the area. They've sided with Sisera. They're in a bit of an allegiance. Verse 13, we shift back to the story. So Sisera gathered together all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, 
And all the people who were with him from that place to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, up. So this is the third prophecy. Again, we'll see, there was a reason that Deborah needed to be there. Barak's ready, they're up in the hills. He's gotten these 10,000 men up into the mountain range. Sisera's in the valley. Now keep that in mind. Chariots are great for warfare and what type of terrain? Flat open spaces. Chariots don't work well up in the mountains. So if the battle takes place in the, in the mountain region, Israel has an advantage. If the battle's gonna take place in the valley, well, Sisera has an overwhelming advantage because of the chariots. So Deborah, here now, third prophecy, she comes to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, 10,000 men following him. Now, wait a second. He goes down from the mountain. He's leaving his strategic advantage to go into a battlefield where the, the odds are now overwhelmingly stacked against him. And why is he going? Because God told him to. And God used Deborah to articulate the message. Do you see a hesitation in Barak? Not at all. Deborah says, up, oh, it's time, let's go. Barak and the men, boom, they're running down the hill. So they're going out. Verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army far away, and all of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword so that not a man was left. What a story. Now, again, who gets credit for it? The Lord. Deborah's been very clear. You're going to be the instrument the battle belongs to the Lord. The Lord's going to grant a victory. You'll just be a tool. Go, Barak. Up. Go. It's time. They're running down the And the Lord, very clearly, the Lord, I love the, I love the language, the Lord routed. Was it just a beat down? It was a rout. Like God overwhelmingly gives the victory to Israel. The word routed in the Hebrew means to disconfit or to move noisily, to confuse. Now, left to just this passage, we don't have a lot of details of how the Lord routed. What was the mechanism? Now, they're in a valley, and there is a river, the river Kishon, in the valley. If you flip over to verse 19 of chapter 5, we'll give a little bit more insight into what takes place. <clears throat> Deborah sings, the kings came <clears throat> and fought. And the kings of Canaan fought. And Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. And ancient, that ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, the galloping of his steeds. Now, what happens? Well, it seems 
that this river that's running through the valley, again, you've got 900 chariots of Sisera. They're ready. They see the, the army of Israel coming down the mountain. They're thinking, this is it. I mean, I mean, they don't stand a chance. And it appears that this is during the dry season. So that this river that's running through the middle of the valley is probably low because everyone recognizes something supernatural happens because what takes place, the river at just the right time of the battle swells, comes out of its banks and runs throughout the valley. Chariots are great in flat terrain. They're not great on hills. But you know the other thing that chariots aren't great in? Mud. This seems to be what happens. That God intervenes, the river swells, it floods out the plain. As Sisera's armies are coming in, as the children of Israel are coming through the other side, it becomes a bog. And these chariots screech to a halt. The horses are stuck in the mud. The chariots are now immobilized. And now it's purely a hand-to-hand combat dynamic, which again is Israel's advantage because Sisera and his armies, well, they rely on their weapons of warfare. And so everyone gets routed. God intervenes. They're delivered. This is an amazing thing. I hope you, I hope you understand that when it comes to really every aspect of life, you and God is a majority. Isn't that the truth? Like no matter what's facing you or what battle's ahead or how insurmountable that situation might appear, if it's you and your husband, you're in trouble. If it's you by yourself, you're in trouble. But if it's you plus you add God into the mix, you're good, baby. Why? Because God's on your side. And God can accomplish the improbable. God can do the impossible. We're told in the New Testament that all things are possible with God. There's nothing impossible. Barak, they're running down the hill. Thinking this is, all right, Lord, we'll see how this works. And as the moment they're hitting the ground, the waters rush, the chariots stop, and God gives the victory. You know, the one thing when it's the you plus God dynamic it's very hard for you to ever take credit for the victory. Isn't that the truth? In fact, so often when we try to take credit for the victory that God has given us, we just look stupid. I've used the analogy before, but like, I'm not a great basketball player. I got like a four and a half inch vertical and I'm white. But if me and LeBron James were a, were, were a duo and we were gonna play two on two with any of you, we'd win. But how silly would it be if I'm over there dribbling, doing my thing, trying to take up my own shots, and LeBron's like, what are you doing? Like, my only job would be what? Just get the ball to LeBron. And he's going to slam dunk over any of you. And we're going to rout you. But did I really do anything? No, my job is just to get the ball to LeBron, right? I shouldn't even dribble. Throw it as high as I can because he can outjump you all, Right? God plus you is a majority. Now, Sisera has bailed off the chariot. He's on foot. He's fled away. And now the the background we got in, in verses 11 and 12 comes into play 
because he runs to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then Sisera said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk. This was warm milk, cream milk was often kept, kind of a leather pouch. And she gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent. If any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say, No. So many questions to the story. JL. She is a Kenite. She has a husband. They're Bedouin. She has a tent. They're set up nearby. Sisera comes running out. Jael's familiar with Sisera. She recognizes him. There doesn't need to be introductions. He's likely gone specifically to this Bedouin area to avoid any cities, detection. There's a, a bit of a peace accord again with Heber, her husband, and the king of the Canaanites. So this makes a, a, a great escape route for Sisera in his mind. I'll go and I'll, I'll enter into the tent of Jael, which was kind of a no-no in Bedouin culture. But she takes him in and she conceals him. Now this man is wore out, he's tired, he's, he's thirsty, and needs some water. And she gives him some milk. So she has welcomed him into her tent. She's hiding him. He is a refugee in her place. And then he, she gives her something good to drink. What's her motivation? What's her plan? What's her heart here? We don't know other than to say, because of the actions that are about to follow, that there is something in her heart. You see, understand that the Kenites, because of their lineage through Jethro and their relation to Moses and how they were grafted into the children of Israel and given land, they had an allegiance with the children of Israel, an allegiance that her husband has violated by siding with the, the Canaanites. He's been playing politics. And there's something within this woman where she looks at it and she's like, that's not right. That's not what we should be doing. But she's submissive. She's going with the flow. But now this opportunity presents. Sisera is escaped, comes into the tent. She puts a blanket over him to conceal him, gives him something good to drink. Sisera now gets sleepy. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg. The, the women in Bedouin culture were in charge of, of putting the tents up and moving them. So this is something she would have been familiar with, instruments that she was good at handling. She took a tent peg and a hammer in her hand, and she went softly to Sisera and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary. And then the, probably the two most obvious, three most obvious words. So he died, right? 
it is very clear that we, can, that we know for sure what the last thing that went through Sisera's mind was. In fact, when she comes out, it's not recorded in the text, but when she comes out of her tent, she declared, nailed it. Looking at it from Sisera's standpoint, this is one of the dangers of getting hammered. All right, I'm out. I'm out. That was it. That was it. I just, I had to get those out. Verse 22, and then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went in to her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. First, the reason that this story is included, this kind of amendment at the end, is it records for Sisera's demise, sets the stage now for just this overwhelming defeat of the Canaanites. It also is recorded because it's the fulfillment of Deborah's prophecy, right? That who would get the glory for the death of Sisera? That it wouldn't be Barak, but it would be a woman. It would be Jael. I find this woman to be very interesting. First, she is strong and she's brave. I might be playing or reading too far into it, but there's just a part of me that she's just like, my husband has been trying to make peace when we shouldn't. And she decided that she needed to take matters into her own hands and stand for righteousness. And again, women, I'd say that if, if your husband is, is messing around with things that he shouldn't be, maybe you should take a tent peg and drive it through. Not him. Not him. Understand how scandalous this was for Bedouin culture. Because accepting the refugee into your tent meant an accord. Giving them something to drink meant peace. J.L. was responsible for Sisera's safety. And yet there was a higher calling. She saw that this was a wicked man. Chapter 5. I know we've looked at some of this. We'll read through it. Then Deborah and Barak sang on that day. It's a duet. It's beautiful. In fact, this is one of the oldest recorded songs in history. This is an amazing song. In fact, if you, if you really dive in to the depths of the poetry, the Hebrew poetry, and, and, and the way that it's structured, um, it's a literary masterpiece. Like It really is just a, a work of art um, from just the structure of the language and how it's all put, put together. So they sing this song, verse 2. When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, 
Bless the Lord. What an important principle. Again, Deborah. Deborah's song is what? When the leaders lead, literally in the original language, when the princes prince. It's masculine. Deborah's like, there's something good within the community of believers when men are men in lead. You know, I've never met a woman that didn't want her husband to lead their family. I've never met a woman that didn't want her husband to step up and lead. Fellas, you, the Lord is blessed when leaders lead. But you know, leaders can't lead without people to follow. So there's a leadership and there's a submission in all of life. And there's something beautiful the Lord is blessed when, he, when in the community of his people, people are leading and people are following and there's cohesion and there's unity. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord. This Sinai, before the Lord God of Israel. There's a little debate. Is this a re repeating of times uh, within the Exodus? Like a looking back to, to previous promises or the continuation of those promises. Again, a redition of what happened uh, within this battle. Either way, as we read in the days of Shamgar, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted. The travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased, ceased in Israel. Until I, Deborah, this is her part of the song, arose, arose a mother in Israel. I love that. Deborah says, I decided to do something. For 20 years, our culture was rotten. We were in rebellion. God was judging us. We were immoral. And the time came in the context of all of this evil that me as a mother said enough. Man, don't we live in a day and age where we need mothers to stand up and say enough to protect their children, to protect their families, to take the lead in the battle if necessary. The power of moms. Deborah, a mother. You know, you ask a guy their roles. Hey, what do you do for a living? They will always start with their career. They never start with, I'm a father or I'm a husband. Oh, I'm a school teacher or I'm a lawyer or I'm a pastor. Deborah could have said, I, a prophetess in Israel, because she was. She says, I'm a mom. Number one, I'm a mother. And my heart as a mom spurred me to act. They had chosen new gods. There was war in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offer themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. Speak you who ride on the white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road, far from the noise of the archers, among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away. 
O you son of Adonai. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. And and then she's going to go through the tribes and their responses. From Ephraim were those roots who were in Amalek. For you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Akir, rulers came down. And from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. And Issachar, so was Barak, sent into the valley under his command, under the division of Reuben. There were great resolves of heart. Reuben. Why did you, though, sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pinings from the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore on vacation and stayed by his inlets. Zebulun is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. You know, there's something that needs to be pointed out about this, this text. First, God takes a record of involvement. Deborah and Barak are singing the song and they go through the tribes of Israel and they're like, you helped and you did nothing. And God noticed. You know the worst thing you can do as a Christian? Nothing. Inactivity is not an option. If we're in a battle, you're called to arms. If you see a brother in a fight, do you sit back idly? Or do you catch his flank? God takes an evaluation. And he commends those who acted in faith. And he rebukes those who didn't do evil. But did what might have been worse. Nothing. The kings came and fought. The kings of Canaan fought. Tanaka by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. The torrents of Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly because they did not come to help, to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Curse Miraz. We have no idea what Miraz was. We have no archaeological evidence of Miraz. We have no reference of Miraz anywhere else. Miraz was apparently a town close by that refused to help, and God cursed it. And when God curses something, that's a bad deal. Most blessed among women is Jael. Now, I need to point this out. There's a bit of controversy about Jael. Did she act righteously? Did she act wickedly? Did God use a wicked act for his purposes? What's the deal with Jael? Did God place his stamp of approval? Was this what she was doing? Was she in obedience? What's the deal? Well, notice that Deborah weighs in on the matter, doesn't she? In fact, she says, most blessed among women is Jael. You know, the only other phrase, that phrase, the only other place, that phrase, Most blessed among women is found in Scripture. The only other woman that phrase is used to describe. Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's it. Only two. Jael, tent peg, hammer, stake. Mary carrying Christ. Blessed among women. 
the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water, she gave milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. At her feet, he sank. He fell. He lay still. At her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. I read one commentary about this section of the song. Again, we don't know what the music was, but the way that the language and the poetry, the rhyme and the rhythm, is that the way that you could read this is as the, as the hammer. You know, so when you're reading it, at her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Just to bring out the, the imagery, the sound, the, the, the texture of, of her driving the tent peg through. I love that. And then Deborah gets kind of dirty here. She says, the mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out through the lattice, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the clatter of his chariots? Now her wisest ladies answered her. Yes, she answered herself. Ah, they are, not fi- they, they are not finding and dividing the spoil. To every man a girl or two. For Sisera, plunder of dyed garments, plunder of garments, embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. So Deborah's imagining the mother of Sisera waiting for Sisera to come back. And why does he tarry? Why does he long? Where is he? And then and the ladies are like, oh, well, he's enjoying the spoils. And we're given a little insight into the depravity here, like the culture, what was going on. In the loot, Sisera and his men, literally a womb or two. They would rape and pillage. Again, don't worry for Sisera. Sisera was judged. You know, we were all judged. Maybe not with a tent peg through the temple, but spikes through the hands and the feet of Jesus. That's where the judgment for our wickedness came. Concluding the song, Thus let your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. Aaron, if you guys would go ahead and come up. The reason I wanted to leave a little bit of worship for the end, and we've got just two songs, is I love the structure of this, right? I mean, from the bigger perspective, God gives a victory. An amazing victory. God intervenes. God steps out of heaven into the scene. He routs their enemies. They had to take a step of faith. They had to rely on the Lord. They had to trust to go down from the mountain into the valley. They heard God's word and had to act on God's word 
to see God's word and its power manifest in their lives. God gave the victory. And then what's their reaction to what God did? To worship, to sing, to take a moment. Thus let your, all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him, the Lord, be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. You know, if they could sing, if they could worship for what God did in their lives, in their day, how much more should we worship when we can look back to what Jesus has done for us, right? And so I just want to close our service out with just two songs to just take a moment and to thank the Lord and to worship for the improbable victories that he's given us. And if you're in the fight, the improbable victories he's going to give you if you walk in faith. So if we could dim the lights, Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word.